welcome to Sam Walking in the World, episode 14. Jam-packed today. Uh, like I said, I was going to get to some serious stuff after the last episode. I was just kind of having some fun. Um, and so I'm going to get to some of that today. Um, but I also have a bunch of stupid stuff, lifey stuff, and I have a couple of happiness hints. So being that I have so much to say, I'm going to get right to it. So stupid stuff. Now, I hope you understand that the stupid stuff really is stupid. Um, it's just stuff I thought, and then I thought, that's stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that's how I came up with stupid stuff. But I don't want you to think for a second that I think any of it really matters. Unless you do, in which case, great. Because I must, because I ended up saying it anyway. Today, it's stupid stuff. Yesterday, I helped my dog get a piece of stick out of her mouth that was stuck in the ridge on the top. Kind of like perpendicular to her snout. It was stuck between her teeth up against that ridge. It was like perfectly form-fitted. She must have broke it off on both sides when she bit it and, it, and then, I don't know, pushed it in there with her tongue. or I don't know what. But she had a little piece of stick in there, and it was like um, I had one of those um, lying with a thorn in its paw moments. She was flipping out. <laughs> trying to get it with her paws and then with her tongue, I guess, because she looked like she was eating peanut butter. And I checked her mouth and I couldn't find anything and she kept doing it. And I'm like, oh my God, I hope she didn't get cut. She doesn't have like a scratch inside her gums or something. And I finally opened her mouth wide enough and looked in the back and it was way in the back on the top. And I thought, oh my God, whenever I see animals in distress, it, it makes me so sad. Um, but... Anyway, I got it out. She was psyched. I mean, my dog is a part Labrador and part poodle. I hate saying the word Labradoodle. But because there's, and there's so many different kinds, you know, you can never predict what a Labradoodle looks like when someone says the word. So I think it's lost all meaning because there's so many kinds. But mine, my dog's, Sadie's mother is a yellow lab full size and her father is a, a miniature silver poodle. If you try to combine those two in your mind and get an animal that you think would result from the two, you're wrong. What she actually looks like is a small Irish setter. So maybe like in the doodle world, she kind of looks like a golden doodle, but miniature. I think she's perfect. She's the perfect size. She's really pretty. That's why I make out with her. Actually, I let her make out with... No, I make out with her. Anyway, um, she is 10 months old, which makes her about six years old in people years, which is funny because she loves hanging out with a seven-year-old boy that lives across the street. <laughs> uh, apparently, they have a lot in common psychologically. They both seem to have no problem just standing there looking around at stuff in the yard. It amazes me. But anyway, I noticed a, a phenomenon with my dog. I don't know if it's common of all dogs, but if something can be swallowed, she'll swallow it, food-wise. Like, like no matter how big a portion it is, if she can get it down, she'll she'll swallow. Her rule of thumb seems to be, I'll swallow it if I can, no matter how big it is. If it's over a certain size and I can't swallow, well then maybe I'll bite it in two pieces, or I'll chew it a little bit and then swallow. It. But her goal seems to be to swallow it. And I guess that's true for adults too. Like, what is it the reason we what is the reason we enjoy eating? 
I think it's that we like the fact that the taste crosses our palate. We like the taste. But I think there's something more basal. Like we'd like to get it in our system. And, and that's why I think people eat too fast because they, and I have in the past, um, because you just, you're hungry and your, your lizard brain wants you to get food down your belly so it can get energy. But anyway, I've come to a, a place where I feel like I'm not serving her well by tossing her big pieces. Like, for example, my dog loves beef jerky. I get her like the unflavored kind and... Um, but she loves it. I don't know if she likes the salt or that it's beef or whatever. But I would toss her like, um, you know what I mean, a medium-sized piece of, of beef jerky. And she would just go, chew, swallow. Not even chew. Just like, gulp. So I'm like, you know what? She does get one pass across the palate when that happens. And I know she must like the taste because she makes choices between stuff she likes the taste of and stuff she doesn't. Oddly, she likes carrots. Kind of weird. Again, bear in mind, all of this is stupid. But I started ripping the beef jerky into the smallest pieces I can, so it's big enough for her to get a taste, but not so big that she just swallows it all and, and there's not enough left for her to get more times, I guess, repetitions across her palate. This is way too much thinking about a dog and dog eating, but whatever. So I rip them in pieces now so she gets a taste swallow. Taste swallow, taste swallow. And she probably ends up devouring it in, I mean, not that much slower a time, but I feel like I'm doing her a service, whether she realizes it or not. Plus, it saves, it makes the treat last longer. For those of you who have dogs out there, you might try it. And then I was also thinking this. Um, I was at the pet store. My dog was playing with her, her boyfriend, Radar, who is uh, the... A dog of a friend of mine, a dog trainer, actually, a great dog trainer. And I was up there, and they were playing, and he has kind of this muddy pond on his property, and the dogs were running around because it was hot, and there was, you know, water. So they went and kind of ran in the water. When they got out and kind of dried a little bit, they were stinky. And so I was like, you know, I, I kind of hosed her down, but she still smelled a little bit, which I honestly don't care. But um, so I was getting her treats at, at PetSmart, and I, I went to the aisle where they have, like, fragrances. Like stuff you can spray on your dog that will make them smell better, I guess. Kind of like, I don't know, doggy deodorant slash air freshener. And and there there are certain ones that are, that are like doggy perfumes. And I thought, you know, usually people wear perfumes so other people will like the smell. I think, you know, when people are dating, they want to smell nice. So the person is like, oh, you smell nice. But um, I thought the perfume... The perfume scents, S-C-E-N-T-S, the perfume scents that I saw seemed like they were more aimed at pleasing people. And I guess that makes sense because the dogs are around and we don't want them to smell bad. So we pick scents like vanilla and lavender that we think well like. But if it was truly doggy perfume, I got to thinking kind of outlandish and I thought like those aren't the right scents. Like if dogs were dating and they wanted to be able to appeal to another dog, they would not wear lavender. Or maybe they would. I don't know if dogs like lavender, but I thought like I thought like some some scents that might actually apply to dogs based on what dogs appear to like smelling. If you see where I'm going with this. And I was like, you know, 
You know what would be? I think the top selling perfume, if dogs could buy them, I think it would be dog butt. Ooh, dog butt. Can't get enough. Kitchen garbage. Roadkill. That would be a good one. Can't seem to keep my dog moving when I walk her and we go by roadkill. Um, person crotch. They seem to like that, too. Uh, of course, squirrel. Probably foot and shoe. Might be one cent. But I just I kept imagining a commercial like, ooh, is that person crotch you're wearing? Close. It's dog butt. Mmm, dog butt. No, I said that was stupid. Yes, it was. But I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on to a happiness scent. I got this yesterday also when I was at my friend's house. He has an outdoor garden. Obviously outdoor. I don't know why I said that. But uh, he grows vegetables in his garden, and he... And he Take took time to make a nice garden with good soil in the right spot. And he planted the seeds the right way and tended to the vegetables, plants the right way. And it produced a bunch of really nice vegetables. And I like vegetables, but I kind of eat them to fill up my stomach so that I don't eat a bunch of like mashed potatoes because of my diet. Um, but And there are certain vegetables I like more than others. But I realized this, and I realized it in the very moment he asked me. As I was leaving, he said, hey, hey, would you like a vegetable? How about a tomato? And I, my initial reaction was like, my mind was like, I'm probably not going to eat it. I'm probably not going to like slice it up and prepare it or whatever. I'm probably just going to eat the string beans that come in the to-go meatloaf package that I get at Wegmans. But I was like, I stopped myself for a second. I was like, yes, I would love a tomato. And he walked over. Picked out a nice tomato from his homegrown garden, kind of dusted it off a little bit with one hand, and then handed it to me. And I thought for a second, I was like, wow, I almost avoided this experience just by saying, I guess kind of telling the truth. No, not really. I'm probably, probably going to go to waste. But I'm like, I honestly don't think he would care. Or maybe he would. But at least for the time being, he would believe that a garden, I mean, a, a, a vegetable from his own garden that he tended for all that time. And, and it, there's something cosmic about growing something. It's kind of mir miraculous. And then handing it to somebody that you care about, being like, here, enjoy the f literal fruits of my labor, which is a fruit, vegetables. I mean, uh, tomatoes. And, uh, and then I took it and I brought it home. And I put it in the refrigerator and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to eat it. I'm going to slice it up maybe with some mozzarella, Maybe put a little bit of vegetable oil on it, or olive oil, and salt, and I'm going to enjoy it. And then and then I'm going to go tell him that I ate it, or next time I see him. Actually, next time I see him. Uh, that relates to something I'm going to be talking about later. I'm not just going to suddenly call him and tell him. I'm going to keep it in the hopper, so when I get to him, I can be like, hey, man, that was a great tomato, which I'm sure it will be. And it will complete the cycle for him. He'll have had the idea to do the garden. Decided on which vegetables, get the soil, plant them with care, make sure that they stayed healthy, harvested them, gave them to someone who would eat them, someone ate them, and then told them how much they enjoyed it. And in one split second, I was almost going to deny that from happening because I didn't happen to think I was going to make it, eat it, or maybe I would throw. And the point is, I, also, I have a 
uh, this woods behind my house. And even if I didn't want to eat it, I could just throw it in the back. It would get devoured by deer or, or I don't know what, squirrels, whatever. And I was so glad that I made that decision. So this is a happiness hint. If somebody offers you vegetables from their homegrown garden, always say yes. Someone says, hey, would you like, I got some hot peppers here. Oh, no, I don't like spicy food. No, I got some cucumbers. No, nah, I don't really like cucumbers. Or even, no, thanks. I'm probably not going to eat it. Say yes. And then you'll probably will eat it. And you'll get to feel like you were part of this cosmic cycle. And that's what I have to say about that. Uh, okay, now, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about some lifey stuff. In particular, I'm going to talk about, like I just said in that segment, I'm going to talk about waiting to tell someone something. Having the urge to tell someone something and waiting. Not necessarily having to call them that moment. So I will get to more about that after this quick message. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 14. That message was brought to you by the beginning of an RBI Nintendo baseball game. Now, I want to talk about waiting. Waiting is important, obviously. it's uh, Patience is a virtue, right? But um, particularly, I want to talk about waiting to tell someone something. Right? How often do you hear people say, I can't wait to tell you this. And I think sometimes it's better to wait until you see the person, kind of put it in your hopper, and wait till you see them, and then tell them. And because especially in the cell phone age where with, with texts and, and actually texts aren't, aren't that intrusive, but you can literally talk to someone anytime you want, as long as they're willing to talk to you too, which in many relationships you feel incumbent on you that you must do that. Um, and so I, I honestly think it's better if someone calls and you're doing something or don't want to take the call. You, you don't take the call and then later on you say, I was doing something and I didn't want to take the call. Or you answer and say, I can't talk right now, I'll call you back. Um, but there is this phenomenon. People say, I can't wait to tell so-and-so this. And is it true, really, that you can't wait? I think it means, what you mean is you're eager to tell them. But you can wait. Sometimes you should, in my humble opinion, as a receiver of calls. Things that you can't wait to tell someone are, your appointment was canceled while they're on their way to it. I hope you didn't get too far because you got canceled. Or there's an accident on your route to the airport. I just heard on the news. So um, take a different road because otherwise you, you might miss your plane. It also gives you, if you wait, it gives you time to contemplate exactly what you want to say and how you want to say it. So you're not figuring it out while you're telling the person. Although there is some benefit to that. I'm kind of figuring out what I'm telling you as I'm telling you. But there are, there are specific things I intend on conveying. But... It just feels like with cell phones, you can literally talk to someone anytime you want. And so I don't know if that's necessarily a healthy thing. Um, I, and here's, here's the difference for me. Talking to somebody on the phone does not really make me feel any closer to them. It doesn't make me feel like I'm any more in their presence. And it's... Just at some people, it, it it does. And I want to say, I was originally going to say, I, I think women kind of feel more connected with someone when they're talking to them on the phone because I just observed my wife doing it. And I've experienced my wife doing it with me. Um, but I think it's just some people. 
some people feel connected when they're talking on the phone. Some people feel like it's just a kind of a holding pattern until you can actually see the person and be connected with them. And so I, I, I think people have to be aware that other people might not feel the same level of intimacy on the phone and they might just be waiting to get off the phone. And that the thing that you had to call and tell them because you're at your moment of peak excitement about it doesn't necessarily increase its immediacy to the other person. Plus, it gives you to something to it gives you something to talk about with them when you do see them. In an age where you can tell someone anything anytime, when you are finally arrive and see them, there is no how was your day? What happened? Tell me some stuff that happened. And the person can be like, oh my God, yes, I, I couldn't wait to tell you this. But I did wait, and it's better. And then, you know what I mean? You can legitimately... Also, it gives people an opportunity to miss each other. If being in another person's... If being on the phone is akin to being in another person's presence, then you are literally never without them. Absence does make the heart grow fonder. The more your familiarity breeds contempt. It really does. No matter how much you love a person. The scratching noise that they make with their fork as they pull it between their teeth will eventually want to make you punch them in the face. Which, of course, you won't do because, because uh, spousal abuse is wrong. And so I don't want to be accused of suggesting spousal abuse. I don't ever actually feel the urge to punch. Or You know what? That's too much of a caveat. I'm not going to be politically correct. But... It lets you miss the other person. And then when you see them, you can share real stuff. I highly recommend this. I I kind of, it, my relationship is kind of like that now. And it's really nice. Because it makes it so much easier to listen to the person when they're talking to you. When, when you finally meet back up with them. You have developed a curiosity. Your appetite for what happened in their life has grown. You didn't know about it the moment it happened. Like a, like a Chiron going across the bottom of the cable news channel. Wow, I didn't realize I was that heated about that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Take it for whatever it's worth. Because there needs to be a limiting principle, I guess is what I'm saying. Modern technology, you, you can literally connect to somebody 100% of the time. And so I think we have to apply our own limiting principles to these things. And waiting to tell somebody something that's not urgent, like that they're going to be late for the airport, is a worthwhile practice. For me, it has been, and it has been an element to my recently found happiness and uh, i will take a quick break and be back after this message <coughs> welcome back to sam walking in the world episode 14 that message was brought to you by a cow and a goat working together apparently they've worked out their differences now i want to talk about failing schools it's driving me nuts and i think it, it has gotten very political so both sides of the political aisle have their different perspectives and opinions on it but from the inside having taught in an inner city school and having taught in a private catholic school <clears throat> having gone to a suburban public school i think i have a pretty wide range of perspectives so first i want to talk about just the idea of failing schools that there's no such thing 
I can tell you with 25 years of experience, there is no such thing as a failing school. At least not as it is meant when people say it. First, schools are buildings. What the phenomenon I've seen recently is when a school has, say, very low test scores or a low graduation rate, they close the building and then reopen it with a different name. Or they'll move it to another building site and then call it something else. And I think they know it won't make a difference, but they, they purport to believe that it will change the success rate somehow. It never does. There are things that do. And we'll get into those. So first, failing schools is, is I don't want to say they don't exist, but it's a, it's a no such thing. And, and first of all, here's one of the problems with it. <clears throat> judging a school or a school district is judging a group, a group of people. The makeup of a school is individuals. So say from a parent's perspective, you have your child. And you ask the question, can my child get an education at this school? Is the teaching of high enough quality? Um, is the curriculum correct? Um, and so for your child, if you're doing your part as a parent, which most are, then it's not a failing school because your child is able to be successful there. But it's when you look across averages and you see graduation rates that are low, you say, oh, that must be a failing school. There must be something wrong going on at that school. And there are so many moving parts to what creates this, the, the perceived success of a group um, that you can't just paint with a broad brush like that. Now, there are many things I believe that cause certain schools to fail. I'll speak from my own experience. I was in an inner city school district that were made unnamed, but um, there was a constant, um, constant supervision and oversight by, by the state education system. And they would target certain schools by certain metrics, low eighth grade math test scores, or 11th grade English Regents scores, or overall graduation rates. And they would put them on this list of schools that were, I don't know what, in jeopardy of being taken over by the state, I guess was the fear they were trying to instill. Except it, it, over time I realized that was never real. Because the, the circumstances that were causing the alleged failing school um, would not disappear were the t state to take over it. All that would happen is the state officials would come into contact with the realities that end up leading to what are perceived to be failing schools. And I'll get into those. Um, and this is not a personal indictment of any particular individual parents or, or administrators or superintendents. It, it, um, I am completely displeased with the New York State Education Department, though I'll say that openly, which is why it is such a blessing to teach at a, at a private Catholic school. All of the extra governmental mechanisms, all the redundance, it's not there. Only what, what is needed to be there to provide the education to the kids. We don't have a lot of money. We don't get paid a lot of money, but it's all real. 
there's a lot of phony stuff going on in in state-run things of all kinds, including schools. Um, so first, here's here's one of the common misperceptions. People from the outside that are in business, for example, or you know, they do other things that are unrelated to to education, to schools, especially to public schools, <clears throat> and most especially to inner city schools. They compare their experience in the private sector with, and, and the efficiency that's required there in order to stay in business with a school, for example, whose graduation rate is 35%, and yet the teachers all keep their jobs, the administrators are, are in no jeopardy. And they say, if, if I were to do that, produce those kind of results in my own private business, I would be out of business. <clears throat> if my employees ended up having production rates that were so low, I would fire them. Or if I was a worker, I would get fired. I don't understand how these schools can just stay in business like that. And and for, for one thing, um, it is true that without a true cost-benefit analysis, without a profit line that needs to be met, which state-run institutions don't necessarily need because they can just create their own money. Um, to a degree, that is true. But here's where it is not true. Let's say, for example, in this analogy, the, um, it's a carpenter. And the carpenter makes decks and additions to people's houses. That carpenter will be able to select his raw materials. He'll do the work of building them, adding value to it, creating something. But he gets to choose his wood. In a, in a state-run school district, or especially an inner-city school district, where there, are, where there are social problems in the, in the community that end up coming into the school, which I'll, I'll also get to later, um, Teachers don't get to choose their own wood. Where teachers have to deal with something like, uh, for example, leave no child, no, no child left behind. Every child must be brought along. We cannot leave any child behind. And you, you would never in a million years ask a carpenter to leave no piece of wood behind. If some of the wood was not treated properly, prepared for the building process and he had to build the deck with it anyway i'm sure whoever was paying for the deck at the end would not be pleased with the quality of the deck but teachers have have no choice but to teach the, the raw material that they have and and a whole bunch of other variables outside the teacher's control end up coming into play that you can't do anything about and one of the major problems with something like Leave No Child Behind is this. And it, it, it particularly affects, I want to say, inner city schools because of certain policies that they have that even suburban public schools don't have. And one of them is social promotion. I don't know if, you, if you're on the outside of the education sphere, if you've ever heard of what social promotion is. <clears throat> it means it means children must not be held back a grade because of their failing performance, their proficiency at the content. 
because the age stigma will apply and they'll be the older, older kid in the class of incoming kids that are younger. And that will have a social stigma that's, that hurts students' self-esteem. Self-esteem. I remember that was every other word people said. And, and, and in other cases too, because you have a wide demographic in an inner city school. And, and you don't want to appear to be holding back certain groups of people. You want to be able to be fair. So what ends up happening is there's almost no retention. Like I know elementary school teachers who have classes where the students take the test for whatever, the promotion test, advancement test, to see if their skills are ready for the next grade. And out of 20, only nine will pass it. <clears throat> so that's 11 kids that ought not be going to the next grade because they're not going to understand the stuff at that grade because the, the foundation for it hasn't been learned. But they're advanced anyway. Maybe two or three kids will be held back with the permission of their parents. But if a parent says, no, 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 I want my student moving on, you move them on. And, and you get this cumulative effect. You know, it kind of reminds me of like those old tractor pulls. I don't know if you remember those, but like the tractor would see how far it could go and this weight on the back of it would gradually move toward the center mass of the truck and eventually just the, the power of the truck and the traction could not um, compete with that weight. Eventually it just stopped. And I feel like that's kind of what happens with students who are perpetually advanced that ought not be if you're basing it on their proficiency at the content. <clears throat> and so you end up with this giant bottleneck when you get to high school. And and, and the, the, the work gets very difficult. The volume of work gets very rigorous. And in certain cases where other variables are in play, those students are not able to be able to be successful. And so then you get those in large numbers and you get a very low graduation rate. And, and people from the outside think that it's because of the failing school. Let me tell you a few things about what people are suggesting as solutions. And at first I was against them. But as I as time goes by, I'm starting to think maybe in a way that they don't perceive. Like that, they're not original intent. But it but in another way, it ends up working out. And here are a couple of the solutions that people frequently suggest when it comes to dealing with failing schools. One is school vouchers. That means a student in the inner city, a parent can take that voucher paid for by the city in which the school district is and 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 go and spend it in, a, in an outlying suburban school district or really any school district of the choice. <clears throat> and and then they would get to go to that school. From the inside teaching in an inner city school, I would that would panic me because I would think, wow, if that happens, all of the students who are prepared for school and do it diligently and have parents who support them will be gone. It will talk about a 35% graduation rate. If you have the best kids that, that want to put in the best effort, leave. Your graduation rate is going to go down to close to zero. And then there's the other problem, too, the reality that they don't want to recognize is the behaviors that are tolerated in an inner city school because there just is so many of them. Um, when there's so many of a behavior, there's, you reach kind of like a tipping point where you cannot address it anymore. Um, because you would be suspending just too many of your own students. 
and that ends up the pressure ends up coming down from the state ends up coming down from the superintendent and now we have to reduce our suspensions because the students can't learn at home despite the fact that they're disrupting the cat class and with them there the student next to them can't learn and the one on the other side of them can't learn but the student can't learn at home so you cannot suspend and so these students that have these ingrained behaviors that have been accepted in one location out of necessity i'm not blaming them the the administrations although i kind of am but if they take those behaviors with their voucher and go to a suburban school and then won't take their earbuds out won't be on time for class, talk back to teachers, fight. They're going to be um, kicked out of those schools. They're going to be expelled. That's a word that's never even said anymore in the inner city because everyone has the right to an education. And so you just move from place to place. But they would be expelled from the suburban school because they haven't reached that tipping point. They have enough students who will do the acceptable behavior, who will comply, whose parents will support consequences. And... And so, you know, Lou Holtz once said when he was talking about recruits coming into Notre Dame and however they would act in their life before they got there, he would say, well, either they become more like us or we become more like them and we're not going to become more like them. And that's kind of the stance that suburban schools would take. And so a lot of them would be would just be kicked out. They'd end up back in the same schools where that, those behaviors are tolerated. However, some of them would make it. Some of them even if they were a little behind academically. Um, and I'm talking about people of all race, color, creed, ethnicity, everything. They, they would be successful. And it would, it would sap the inner city school of the, the students with great potential. The other solution that people suggest is, is uh, school choice, which is essentially the same thing. But it would end up, I, I believe it would end up producing the same result. What would happen is, say, say for example, they disbanded an inner city school district because it was uh, failing. They got rid of the whole district. And they said to all the people, parents that went there, they said, you can choose whichever school you want to go in the outlying area. And that's another problem that inner city schools, particularly in this city that I'm talking about, face is that there is a quality suburban school district, probably six to eight miles in any direction, dozens of them. And so really all you have to do is if you're a working parent and you really care about the your student getting out of that climate, because there is kind of a failing climate, but if you want them out of there, you can get, you can get in a, a one bedroom apartment in one of the apartment complexes in a suburban school district and, you, and your son's got it made or daughter's got it made going to a school where they don't have to listen to swearing in the halls or or constant fighting and, you know, one-fifth of the school walking the halls the whole time with people making announcements over the overhead that they need to go to class now. They're already one minute late, disrupting the classes that have already begun. Um, so if they disbanded the school district and they all went to these other schools, there would be no place for those students who didn't make it in those schools to go back to. So in a sense, they would be expelled from school. They would start in the inner city schools. Parents would say, okay, I'm, you're going to go to this uh, city, this suburban school district on the outskirts of the city. 
and you're going to get a better education because that's a successful school, not a failing school. <clears throat> and then the behaviors that are already manifest in the child by that point come out and they get, they get, you know, removed from that school and there's no other school for them to go to. They could try the other suburban school districts in the area, but they would have the same expectation because they're, they're also not past that tipping point where they have to accept the behavior because it would mean suspending too many students. And so there would be no inner city school district for them to go back to. So essentially they would be out of school. They would end up not being able to go to school. And that is tragic in one sense because everyone has the right to an education. But in another sense, it's not tragic because in many cases, those are the students because they've just been promoted from grade to grade, not having developed cumulative skills and, and, and requisite behaviors that eventually end up being the behaviors that you need in society anyway to, to succeed at a job, even if you're a cashier. Um, they would be out of the equation and, and all of not only would all of the quality students that are prepared succeed, but all of the fence sitters would have a chance to succeed. Those students that are kind of in the middle who will go along with the bad behavior and go along with the apathy toward education if there's a, enough of a pull or they would go the other way if there was enough of a pull. And that's why that tipping point and where it is is so essential. Now, this is just my opinion. I'm not you know, speaking for anybody else. Um, but here's a, here is one thing that I think sometimes people expect schools to be able to do that is not the job of a school, mainly because the school does not have the ability to do this job. And I call it, I've come to call it, providing the or else. The or else. You will do this or else a consequence will happen that we will we will insist on that you will not be able to escape. And if worse comes to worst, you will not be here. Okay. The or else cannot be provided by a school. The or else can only be provided by a parent, grandparent, a, a caregiver, adult caregiver at home in the house. Because it, it, you reach a school district or any state institution, it is not their job to raise people essentially and so so without the help of someone at home providing leverage from the other side and this part of it is just adolescence you want to escape responsibility you want to escape work and so you'll you'll move to the path of least resistance and, and if the school presses from one side saying we have this expectation you must do this and there is no force on the other side providing leverage that squeezes the child into a spot where they go oh i guess they don't have a choice i'm gonna have to do this the child will continue to flee away from the effort from the appropriate behavior from all of that and they'll they'll just never be able to succeed parents have to provide the or else I'll just, I'll just give you an example. There's a student in the hallway that's five minutes late to class that's just standing around. A hall monitor goes up to the student and says, hey, look, man, you need to be in class. The student swears at the hall monitor, disrespects him, and just walks down the hall in the other direction. Another hall monitor finds the student going the other way and says, hey, where are you going? They look up their schedule on their little device and say, you're supposed to be down in 201. Why aren't you there? And the student sucks his teeth, 
cusses at that person and then leaves or just goes into the cafeteria, goes downstairs by the gym because they don't really want to leave. They just don't want to be in the classroom. These, this particular brand of student I'm talking about, I'm not talking about all students. I'm not even talking about most students. I'm talking about enough to create a tipping point. That student is assigned to detention. So I have to say after school now as punishment, student skips the detention or stays in the building but doesn't go into the class, Doesn't never suffers the, neg the negative feeling, the, the consequence, the thing that they would like to, you would ostensibly like for them to want to avoid in the future. They never feel it. And then you say, okay, the consequence for skipping your detention is two detentions. They skip both of those. You call the parent, but you can't get a hold of the parent. Or the parent says, I'm doing what I can, but I just, I, I, I can't control this kid. You know, maybe I'm a single mom or, you know, I'm working or whatever it is. And, and so you say, okay, then the behavior cannot be tolerated. Now your consequence is a suspension from school for one day. Student comes to school anyway or stays out for that day, does whatever they want because there's no leverage on the other side. There's no or else coming from the other side. And then they come back to school and continue their behavior. Eventually, enough students like that follow that pattern and you just cannot. It's untenable to suspend, you know, a fifth of your population every day. And so it, it, there, it ends up being this tragic situation where where you're, you're, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, you're going to have what are perceived from the outside to be failing schools. And it, it's, it, it, it just isn't the job of the school to manage all of that stuff in a, in a child's life that will create the readiness to be able to learn. And what ends up happening is any, any kind of behavior I mean, barring really, really outrageous behavior. One thing that is kind of a myth is in inner city schools, there are not, there is not guns or weapons very much at all. Whenever you hear stories about someone shooting up a school, usually it's in a suburban school. In the inner city, they tend to handle their differences outside. They, they handle that in their neighborhood. And they, and they come to the school. The school is actually a safe place, probably one of the safest places in their lives. And as a teacher, I never felt physically threatened or worried about a gun in a lock or, or anything like that. But all of the behaviors underneath that end up being tolerated. And students end up, because of social promotion, being passed to the next grade. And what you end up doing is, is having a situation where you have to increase your graduation rate. And so... What ends up happening in the city school district that I've been in, I'm sure it's in, it's common in other city school districts around the state, is they just work with the state education department to create some kind of diploma that these students, this, this unstoppable force, ends up being um, allowed, you know, these students end up being allowed to graduate in some way. And in many cases, they can't even read the writing on the diploma. And if they do take it out into the world and, and, and say, for example, go to a, you know, a convenience store and say, I want to be a cashier here. And they, and the teacher, I mean, the, uh, the manager must have some kind of screening process, even if simple, uh, you know, do this, do this two digit, two digit multiplication, um, write a sentence to answer each of these questions. And the student can't do the math. Or doesn't care to do it. And the manager says, I'm sorry, you can't work here. And their diploma ended up being useless. 
or they'll take their diploma because we have programs that allow um, underprivileged high school kids to go to college, even if they can't pay for it. And so they'll take the money from those programs, the grants or whatever, and they'll go to a community college and then they'll get there and they'll take a placement exam to find out where they should begin taking their classes there. And invariably students whose diploma does not really care, carry real weight in terms of performance and competence. Notice I didn't say competency and competence. They'll, um, they'll end up having to take non-credit classes. In other words, they'll repeat high school grades for real in college before they can take actual college classes. But the, the district is okay now because it's not as much a failing school because it increased its graduation rate. And so the state takes it off the list. They put some other school on the list and they go through the same process again and again. And by the end of my career in the inner city, my, my um, belief that the state would ever provide any real consequence to, to fail, quote unquote, failing schools became nil and so and that's the game that they play and I think a lot of it is because a school district a state institution of any kind is not in charge of raising kids it's in charge of educating them sorry I had to take all that out on you but it was very cathartic for me so that's what I have to say about that and with that, I believe I have come to the end of my road. Um, I don't know how this went for you, but I really enjoyed this one. Um, so thank you for listening as always, and I hope to see you soon, hopefully tomorrow.